0: Good morning, everybody. Well, we're going to continue this morning with our studies in the parables of Jesus. And uh, we are going to be today talking about the parable of the two debtors. The parable of the two debtors. This is Luke chapter 7, and we'll be in verses 36 through 50. The parable of the two debtors, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through uh, 50. Now... You remember last week we were in the parable of the children in the marketplace. Everybody remember that when I forgot my computer and had to go by, by memory. And, uh, in that parable, uh, the Pharisees and others referred to Jesus as a friend of sinners. You remember that? They, they said John, uh, he's got a demon and Jesus is a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Now, they meant that as a term of derision. In other words, they, when they call Jesus a friend of sinners, what they're saying, they, they're basically intuiting that He condones their behavior, that when He eats with them, that when He hangs out with them, that He condones what they, they do. Well, of course, that's not true at all, right? Jesus never condones sinful behavior, but He hangs out with sinners and He eats with sinners because He wants to present to them the good news that forgiveness is available, right? It's kind of hard to present the good news to sinners if you never talk to them, if you don't hang out with them. And and Jesus was absolutely glad to do that. So today, we refer to Jesus as a friend of sinners. I think there's a song out right now, Jesus, Friend of Sinners, I hear on the radio. But we don't mean that as a term of derision, do we? We use that as a loving term of our Savior, because that's exactly what what He is. He is a, a friend of sinners. Yet, we have to remember that Jesus was a friend to all sinners, right you see we 're going to talk today about the the parable of the two debtors and we 're going to see where an immoral woman comes in and she cries and she wets his feet with her tears and she she dries them with her hair and all that and most people think well this is a this is a story about the woman, but it 's really not it 's really a story about a man it 's about a man named Simon. Uh, the Pharisee. She is an element of the story, but the story is really all about him. Uh, It's really a story about Jesus doing personal evangelism with a Pharisee, not not necessarily with the woman. So we need to remember that when Jesus, we call him a friend of sinners, he's a friend of all sinners. Highfalutin sinners and lowfalutin sinners, right? Religious sinners and non-religious sinners. He, he really doesn't care. He, he, he just wants to present the story of forgiveness to all sinners, no matter how good, how bad, whatever the case may be. And, and remember, and we talked about this in our class, the worst sinner is really the one who thinks he's okay. Isn't that true? That that ends up being the worst one because they can't be reached because they think they're okay, they think that God is satisfied with them, that God's okay with them, and so it makes them very difficult to reach. And that that sin of self righteousness, and we'll see that today uh, in our story. Okay, so let's turn to our story. Verse. Uh, let's start in verse thirty-six. Luke seven thirty-six through fifty. We'll start with verse thirty-six. It says, "One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him." And so he went with him into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Now, here's just what we talked about. Jesus, ta- Nicodemus said, he called, Nicodemus is a tax collector, right? He says, Nicodemus, let's go to your house and eat. Simon the Pharisee, Jesus, would you want to come to my house? Sure, no problem. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't care. Now this is, think about Jesus for a second. This, when you read the Bible and you start reading these stories, one thing you notice about him, Is when he gets an opportunity to evangelize, he zeroes in on that opportunity. He really doesn't care what's happening around him. Can you imagine the politics in that day? I mean, obviously, every time he hung out with with a with a low life sinner, right? The prostitutes and the tax collectors, the Pharisees are all saying, "Well, look at that, right?" But on the other hand, don't you think every time he hung out with the Pharisees, all the other the low life sinners could say, "Well, look at that. He's one of them, right?" There's all this, these politics. Sometimes you got to think about what is this person going to think, or what is that person going to think if I go over to their house? What will they think? Jesus is like, who cares? He doesn't care at all about that kind of stuff, right? He, if he gets a chance to evangelize, if he gets a chance to witness, if he gets a chance to spend some time with somebody, prostitute, tax collector, or or a Pharisee, that doesn't. That's all that matters. So here's a Pharisee that invites Jesus over, and Jesus says, sure, he accepts the invitation, because that's what he does. You remember last week, the children in the marketplace, John is, is out there in the desert, he's wearing camel hair, he's eating uh, locust and wild honey, right? And Jesus, we said, comes in wedding mode. He's not like that at all. He's eating and drinking, he's going to people's house, he's hanging out, going to weddings. It's, it's two different types of ministries, and we see that again here today. Jesus has no problem going to this Pharisee's house. And so he goes to the Pharisee's house, and it says they reclined at table. Now keep in mind, in those days, they don't have tables and chairs like we do today. They had, very, if, if they had a table at all, it was a very low table, very low. And so what they would do is they would recline around that table. They'd throw pillows and, and rugs and blankets or whatever around the table, and they would actually recline. They would lay on their elbow, most of the time with their heads toward the table and their feet away from it. And they would just sit around, and that's how they, they fellowshiped, and they ate, and, and just enjoyed one another's company. So, this man named Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus over. Now, keep in mind, Simon is a Pharisee, so he knows the Scripture, does he not? He He knows all the prophecies. He knows... All the promises. He knows there's a, a prophet greater than Moses is, 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 is prophesied to come on the scene. He knows that there's a Messiah that's coming. And, and here that Messiah is, sit in his house, reclining at his table with him. Now, this should have been the greatest day of Simon's life, right? I mean, this is what the Scriptures have promised. This is he, He's a religious man. The, everything he's lived for, everything he's, you know, all of his tithing and his fasting and his praying is culminated in this day. The Savior, the Messiah, is in his house. This should have been the greatest day of his life. But, but he's not amazed at all. In fact, as he looks at Jesus, all he sees is this dusty preacher. All he sees is a man. All he sees is a, is a teacher. Maybe a prophet. He's not real sure that he might be a prophet, but, but he just doesn't, he doesn't see him as Messiah at all. So he invites Jesus over to eat, which on the surface is a, is a good thing, right? You think, well, he's invited him over to eat. But what we know is he doesn't respect Jesus. He doesn't see Jesus for who he, he really is. And his motives are not pure. Now, at a minimum, he's invited Jesus over to kind of validate his own opinions of this, of this Judean preacher. He's, at a minimum, he thinks, you know what, maybe this guy's a teacher, I'm going to invite him over and I'm going to find out what he's really about. Or he could have something, uh, some ulterior motives, like maybe he's actually like the lawyer trying to capture jesus trying to test jesus have him say something that he can then use uh, to condemning and you say well Derek, how do you know all this how can you read all this into his motives well the, re- the way we know that is because jesus is in his house at his table with dirty feet now if you go back and you look at that culture foot washing or offering foot washing to someone that comes into your house this is a deeply ingrained custom for thousands of years. In that day, everybody wore sandals, the roads, you walked everywhere, right? There's no cards, or no you can't call Uber and, 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 and get a ride somewhere, right? You, you walk everywhere. And so when you come to somebody's house, your feet are absolutely filthy. we all got kids, right, that run around barefoot and they come in and their feet are just disgustingly bad. Well, that's how people's feet were back then. So one of the things you did when somebody... The first thing you did is you offered them a pail of water or a bowl of water, something to wash their feet. Or if you were a man like Simon, you probably had servants. You had your servants do it. So to not do that, to not offer somebody to wash their feet, to not have their feet washed is a complete sign of disrespect. That is just not something you did in that culture, but yet this is exactly what Simon does. He does not offer Jesus any way to wash his feet. So here is Jesus. He's at the table. He's reclining. Maybe they're having some conversation. He's got filthy feet, but Jesus doesn't say anything about it, right? Doesn't make a big scene. He just says, you know, okay, that's no problem. And as they're sitting there, as they're eating, someone else enters the room. Let's pick up in verse 37. And behold, A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So what do we know about this woman? Well, we know she was a local woman. Everybody knew her. She was from that city. We're not talking about a metropolis like New York City. This is a, you know, cities back then were uh, a few hundred at the most, uh, you know, uh, maybe a thousand people, not a big city. And, and I believe they're in the in the in the village or the town of Bethany here. So it's not a big place. Everybody knows everybody. So everybody knows her. And and here in Luke, he just calls her a sinner. Now this woman had a reputation. She was known to everybody. So when they walked, when she walked in, they knew who she was. And it was so shameful. Basically, sinner is a euphemism for a prostitute. It's just you, you, in that day you didn't even talk about what they did. You would never call her a prostitute or other words to that effect. You just didn't do that. It was shameful even to speak that kind of language. So they would just use a euphemism, call her a quote unquote a sinner. But everybody knew she was a prostitute. Okay? But that's, again, they're just being, they're being polite about it. So she comes into the, she comes into the house and she walks up and, and I can just imagine she, and I want you to put yourself in her place, right? She goes in, I mean, this is a, this would be like, you know, one of us walking into some highfalutin place, right? And we just, we know we don't belong there, right? I mean, we, she knows she does not belong there. So it takes a lot of courage and a lot of bravery for her to even walk into that place, right? Now look at verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, remember he's reclining at table, his head's toward the table, his feet is away, So standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet, and she anointed them with the ointment. So this is just, I mean, I I, I can just imagine. She walks in, she's got eyes for him. They're probably staring daggers at her, right? Like, what are you doing here? And she's got eyes for one person. I mean, she, she is just staring intently at him and she walks up and she just begins to sob. I mean, this is, these aren't just tears rolling down. I mean, she is sobbing. She sobs so much that it wets his feet with her, with her tears. Now, let's stop for just a moment and I want you to put yourselves at that table. You're one of Simon's friends. In fact, let's do it this way. Let's say today you meet somebody in church. There's a preacher that's visiting. And, and, and you get an idea, well, we're gonna invite him home for dinner. And so you invite this preacher over to your house, okay? And y'all are all sitting around, you're having a nice meal, and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door, and there's a woman standing there. <clears throat> and you know this woman. And this, this woman does not have a good reputation, okay? You know her, she's dirty, she's ragged, she's, she's just got a bad reputation. And you open the door, and she walks to the, straight to that preacher, and she bends down and she takes his shoes off and she begins to cry and she begins to hug his feet and she begins to wipe his feet. Now you tell me, you're in that room, how do you feel? You, is that appropriate? Come on, get yourself out of that story that's a Bible story and put yourself in the room. Is that appropriate? Of course it's not appropriate. How would you feel if you were at the table? You would be mortified. Would that be the most awkward situation? Seriously, come on. Yes or no? See, we got to quit reading these bo- these stories. Oh, that's a nice Bible story. Put yourself in the story. Put yourself in the room. What if I was there? How would I have handled that situation? What if it handled, you know, what if it happened that way? See, this is a difficult situation for Jesus. Right? In the first place, she's a known prostitute. He knows that. He, he's a, he's a prophet, guys. He knows. He can read men, men's hearts. He's fixing to do it here in just a minute. He knows exactly who she is. She walks in the room. I mean, he's a holy man. And she begins to touch him and she begins to, to, to wet his feet and she's pouring this ointment and, and these people are looking around thinking, does he know her? This is a, this is, would you agree this is even intimate? Yes or no? Sure it is. This, these guys, this is, for Jesus, you know, for us, I'd be like, oh, how, she, she's gonna make me look bad in front of all these people. Yes or no? Sure she is. See, Jesus, I mean, He just is not fazed by that stuff at all. He doesn't really care what that person thinks. He, he's not into all that. But see, this is a very, I mean, we got to understand this is a very serious breach of propriety. These are just things you just don't do, and and as as I said, it would be very easy for those looking on to say, "Do they? Are they? Do they know each other?" Right? I mean, even we have to admit, from a social standpoint, at the the least, it's inappropriate. And I mean, mean, there's—I mean—but Jesus, Jesus doesn't seem doesn't seem to bother him at all. Now now again, Simon and his guests are absolutely mortified. By the way, we would be too. If we were sitting there, we'd be like this. Does he know who this woman is that's touching him? We would think the same way that they thought. Now Jesus, as I said, he's completely unfazed by it. He knows her. He knows what's in her heart. He doesn't do anything to stop her. Our story continues. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee... "...who had invited him saw this, he said to himself..." Now notice this, he says it, in. he's not talking to anybody, is he? He's thinking this, he says to himself, he, he doesn't voice this out loud, doesn't say it to the guy sitting beside him, he just voices it to himself. "...if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a, quote, sinner." She's a prostitute. He, he would know that. How, what, what's wrong with this guy? Okay. He—if he, I thought he was a prophet before I came into the room, now I know he's not a prophet, because any holy man would not let somebody like that be polluted by the touch of a prostitute. So there's there's no way this man's a this man's a, a, a prophet. That that's that's out. So even if he even thought that, now he's validated within himself that that's not the case. Now. The irony here is that Jesus is a prophet and Jesus knows not only who the woman is and what's in her heart, he also knows who Simon is and what's in his heart. In fact, even as Simon is thinking this, Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking, does he not? Okay, because you look at the next verse, look at verse 40. And Jesus answering him, now how could Jesus answer something that the man never said out loud? Right? The man's thinking it to him. So this is the ironic part, is that the man uh Simon says, if he were a prophet, in the very, and Jesus is going to turn around and prove himself a prophet because he knows what the man's thinking. So look at verse 40. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I've got something to say to who? To you. See, this story is about Simon. The story is not about the woman. The woman plays a part, but this story is all about the Pharisee. Simon, I have something to say to. You And he said, go ahead and say it, teacher, not Lord, not Messiah, not Savior, just teacher. See, he, he just sees him as a man. He's one of these traveling teachers that goes around and, and people follow him for a while and then they're, they, they fade away into oblivion and you never hear from him again. Go ahead and say it, teacher. Verse 41 to 42. This is where Jesus tells the parable. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, remember in that day, a denarius was a day's wage for a Roman soldier. Okay, If you look at a day's wage today and you put this in American dollars, you could say roughly he owed one guy 90,000 and he owed another guy 9. So if you want to put it in American dollars, it would be about $90,000 versus $9,000. It's ten times difference. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50 when they could not pay, he canceled or forgave the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, Well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. That's your parable. Okay? Now, here comes the explanation of the parable. Jesus doesn't always explain parables, but in this case, he's doing personal evangelism, right? Right? He's going to deal with this, and he's going to explain the parable. Now, in this parable, unlike other parables that we have, this parable is about two real, living, breathing human beings that are sitting in that room. It's a story, but it's about two real people. One is the woman, and the other is, of course, Simon. And and understand, these are people on two opposite ends of the spectrum. As a Pharisee, Simon is admired by other men right he's educated he knows the scriptures he's self disciplined he ties he fasts. he prays he's ethical he's moral he's all those things that men admire on the other hand you've got a woman with a reputation she's sleazy uh her law-breaking is public knowledge everybody knows it nobody would call her a godly woman Nobody would. Uh, I doubt she's ever in the temple or the synagogue. She probably would be would be laughed out of there, or, or maybe even stoned out of there. No one mistakes her as a woman of God. She men have desired her, but they don't admire her. So you got one man that's admired and another woman who is absolutely not admired at all. On the other, if you look at it other ways, they they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. She's very aware of her sin. Simon. Not so much. He's not aware of his at all. She is uh, aware of her need for forgiveness. Not Simon. She has got this great love and and great thankfulness in her heart. Not Simon. They are literally two people on opposite ends of the spectrum. Now look at verse 43 to 46. Then turning toward the woman, he said to who? Simon. this this, This is about you, Simon. Do you see this woman... I entered your house. Now watch the opposites. This is what you did. This is what she did. This is what you did. This is what she did. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Now up to this point, Jesus had not said anything about the foot washing. I entered your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her hair, with her tears, and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Okay? Therefore, I tell you, verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, we need to stop right here. Okay? We need to do a little bit of Bible study. I know this whole thing is a Bible study, but we need to zero in and do a little bit of Bible study. There is a verse right there. I want to read it again. Verse 47. Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now somebody tell me, why could that verse cause us a problem? Look at that verse and see what it says. Why is that verse a problem that we need to look at? Huh? Okay. If you look at that verse, it looks like it's saying she was forgiven because why? Because she loved much. In other words, she comes in, she cries, she wets his hair, she pours the oil and she does all that, and Jesus says, you're forgiven because of what you did. Right? That's a problem for us, is it not? See, it, it sounds like Jesus is saying her sins were forgiven because she performed those acts of love. And you could see how somebody could take that verse and say, well, if I if I whip myself, Right? If I show Jesus how much I love Him by whipping myself till I bleed, my sins will be forgiven. If I forgo life and go into a convent and spend the rest of my life in, 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 in this solitary, then Jesus will forgive me. Everybody with me? So you can take that verse and bring it out and it'll look like, it looks like if you do enough acts of love, Jesus will forgive you. The problem with it is, is what about Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. It's just rain. We've all heard rain before. Right? Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. So, i got a problem here, right? Everybody with me? So we need to look at this. Keep in mind the word for can be used two different ways. Let me give you an example. What if I said to you, the truck blew up for the dynamite was unstable? Okay? See, in that case, the word for is a cause. What caused the truck to blow up? The dynamite was unstable. But what if I said this, the truck blew up for I saw it happen? Did me seeing it happen cause the truck to blow up? No. See, in that case, it's all about evidence. In other words, sometimes the word for can be translated this this is the cause of what happened, but sometimes it can be translated to mean this is the evidence of what happened. Everybody with me? Okay. Now, we have to read that sentence again and ask the question, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. How is Jesus using it in this sentence? Is he using it as a cause? Was the cause of her forgiveness the acts of love? Or was the acts of love the evidence of her forgiveness? Well, let's look at it in context. Let's look at the whole from verse 42 all the way down to verse 50. Look at what he said. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Now in that verse there, which comes first? The cancellation of the debt or the love? The cancellation of the debt or the forgiveness of the sins. Look at verse uh, at the end of verse thirty-seven. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Which comes first, forgiveness or love? Forgiveness. Look at verse fifty. And he said to the woman, "Your faith has saved you. Go in peace." Which came first, the faith or the or the forgiveness? Okay. So it's obvious to me when you look at it like that that Jesus is not creating some new doctrine. He's not saying if you go out and do these great acts of love, then your sins are going to be forgiven. What he's saying there is the love was the evidence that she had been forgiven. Okay? Everybody with me? So I just want to make sure we zeroed in on that because that you can take that out of context and it be misleading. Now let's go back and read 47 to 50 again. "'Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much.' But he, and here's the, here is the whole point of this parable. He who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. There's the whole point of this parable. He who is forgiven little loves little. This is the principle. This is the meaning. You remember we said this from day one. A, a parable is not an analogy, right? You, you can't go into a parable and find it, every little piece. A parable has one meaning, one purpose. And this is the purpose and meaning of this parable. Great love comes from great forgiveness. Everybody with me? Great love comes from great Forgiveness. Now, that little sentence reveals a mammoth truth for you and I. And that is, we will love God to the degree that we recognize the magnitude of our own sin and the immensity of God's grace to forgive them. Let me say that again, because this is a big truth for us in our life. We're going to apply this here this morning to ourselves. We will love God to the degree that we recognize our own sinfulness. Everybody with me? Okay? You remember, we just looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan a few weeks ago. Everybody here, and and then I preached that a couple, three weeks ago. And you remember the lawyer comes to Jesus and says, hey, you know, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you're a lawyer. You, You know the Scriptures, you tell me. And the lawyer says this, you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and you'll love your neighbor as yourself. And you remember in studying that parable, I think we all gained a better understanding of what it means to love your neighbor. I did. Did, did anybody else hear? Right? I mean, if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, that means you do for your neighbor everything you would do for yourself. Remember the, the example we had where uh, somebody's car breaks down? And we think if we stop and let them use our cell phone that we've been a good Samaritan, right? But what we realize that if you're going to really love that person the way you love yourself, that means that when you stop and help them and they call the wrecker and the wrecker comes, you pay for the wrecker. And then you put those people in your car and you take them to the mechanic shop. And when you get to the mechanic shop, you pay the mechanic. And then you take those people to the rental car place and you rent them a car. Right? Because that's exactly how you would do for yourself. The fact is, very few of us love anybody the way we love ourselves. See, what we found out is that in practice, love your neighbor is a lot different than we, we think it is. But how about loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? What does that look like? Well, in fact, don't we see that in today's parable? Don't we see that in today's story? That that, You want to see what loving God with all your soul, all your strength, all your heart? Look at that woman. Coming into a place where she's not welcome. People are staring daggers at you. People are judging you. People don't want you there. And yet you wade right in there. And you just... It looks inappropriate. It looks completely... I mean, this ain't good. And you don't care because you love him and everything else just fades away. That's what loving God looks like. You see folks, just like loving your neighbor as yourself is a lot different than it really, we really think it is. I can tell you what loving God looks like can sometimes shock us the same way it shocked Simon. It's, 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 I think there's a lot more to it than we've ever, than we really know. Now, here's the question. What is the application of this parable for you and I? Okay? I've thought a lot about that this week. Uh, I mean a lot about this. And I don't know the best way. I'm going to try to explain it. I'll do my best. I put up a, a line here. You remember I said that Simon and the woman are opposite ends of the spectrum. Are they not? On one end, you got Simon who is, who is less sinful. Even Jesus said, he who is forgiven more. Right? He Simon you want to she's more sinful. She's got more sins. She's got a lot worse sin. She's on this end of the spectrum. Simon's on the other end. He fa he fast, he prays, he ties. He he he's a moral man, he's an ethical man. Right? He's a religious man. He's on the other end of the spectrum down there. Now I want to ask you a question. Where do you want to be on that spectrum? Do you want to be less sinful like Simon? Or do you want to be more sinful like the woman? Well, if we answer truthfully, we are to be a holy people, are we not? Right? I mean, we're to be a holy people. So so we want to be on that end. We want to be less sinful. That should be our goal every day, to, to walk uh, uh, Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, walk worthy of the calling in which you've been called. So if we're honest, we want to be down there. Yes or no? All right. Now, let's add this there. Look at that spectrum again. On this end, she loves God more than Simon. Yes or no? Now, where do you want to be? You want to be down there. Everybody see the pickle? (laughs) There's the pickle we find ourselves in. I, I, I want to love God more, right? But how do I do that? Does that mean I run out and commit a bunch of sins? Everybody see the pickle we're in, right? It's kind of a, it's a conundrum. So what's the answer for us, you and I, to love God more? Should we be more sinful? Should we go out and commit greater and bigger sinful acts? By the way, Paul heard this all the time in Romans 6.1. He answers the question that he's heard over and over again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should I just go out and sin a bunch so I'll find out what that's like? so I'll know God's forgiveness and I'll love Him more? Well, of course not. Paul said in Romans 6, 2, By no means. How can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? See, the answer is not that we need to commit more sinful acts, but the answer is that we need to see ourselves as more sinful, not be more sinful. See, we, we need to see ourselves the way that God sees us. You see, our we need to change the way... That we view sin. If we're going to love God more, then we have to see ourselves differently. We have to see ourselves like the woman saw herself as people who have been forgiven much. Now how do we do that? Well, let's start with our problem. As, as, as people, this is what we do. We see the magnitude of our sin in relationship, in relation to the acts that we commit. Do we not? Yes or no? Every one of us, we judge ourselves based on the acts that we commit. If we do certain things, we're more sinful. If we don't do those things, we're less sinful. See, it's all tied to the acts, what we do, what we don't do. That, that's just how we've got this measuring stick. And, and, and what we do, if we're not careful, we begin to take that measuring stick and judge ourselves against who? Other people. Well, look at them. I'm not as bad as they are. Or they're worse than me. By the way, this is exactly what the Pharisee did in Luke 18. He goes in the temple and he prays and he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everybody else. Especially not that guy. See him over there? He's a tax collector. See, we, we judge by, by the acts. So we see ourselves as more sinful or less sinful based on the acts that we commit. But what if we could change that so that we are we see our sin not in a relationship not in relation to acts that we commit not in relation to what other people do but we just see our sin in relation to him we see how our sin affects him we we, we view our sin through through his eyes not through our our own what what if instead of comparing ourselves to other people we began just comparing ourselves to God himself would that change our viewpoint Let me give you a real simplistic example. Let's say you got a man and he he lives on an island, never been off that island, and he's five foot eight inches tall. But the whole island is full of pygmies. Everybody there is five foot two or less. So this guy lives on this island for 40 years. Now you tell me, how would he see himself? Tall. Man, I'm a giant. I'm walking around. You bunch of pygmies, you bunch of short people, right? He's tall. And then one day he gets an opportunity to come to America. And all of a sudden in America, he's five foot eight, he's looking around and there's, everybody's taller than him, right? Well, in a very simplistic way, that's what we do. We walk around comparing ourselves to others when we need to stop and realize that our sin is all about him. It all needs to be compared to him. How does he see us? Not how do we see our, ourselves? If we want to love God more, we need to see ourselves as more sinful. But to do that, we have to compare ourselves to God, not others. And by the way, that's exactly what the Bible does. We always begin, right, in, in our Romans road of salvation with Romans 3.23, which says, and we can all quote it, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, when, when, when the Bible says you're a sinner, it, it's doing that in relationship to God. It's saying you're compared to Him. You've come, you've, you're short. You've fallen short. Right. I ran across this this week. I don't. Know, I don't know how we go through life and read these things over and over and over and over and over again and never see it. But I was listening to a sermon this week on something else, and, and the guy brought this out, and I thought, Wow, I've never seen that. James two ten and eleven says this: For whoever keeps the whole law, but falls but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. We all know that scripture, right? Now, be honest. Hadn't you ever thought how is that fair? That really makes no sense, right? I commit one little thing, and that guy over there commits a thousand, right? Because isn't that, isn't that how we think? See, my acts are here, their acts are up here, I'm not as sinful as they are. But James says, no, 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 that's not the way it works. He says, you commit one, you're guilty of all of it. In other words, he commits, you're just as guilty as the guy that did a thousand. Now, you may ask the question, now, come on, James, how is that even fair? In fact, you might even ask him, James, how can you justify that statement? Now, verse 11 starts with four. That word means what? Because. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all because he's fixing to justify why that statement is true. And I don't know how I missed this. But look at what he says. Because he who said, do not commit adultery, said, do not murder. James says, you want to know why your sin is so bad? Because he said, don't do it. The same God that says, don't do this, said, don't do that. Which means your sin is all about rebellion. It's all about your attitude toward him. Everybody see that? He's saying that's what makes it bad. It's not the actual act itself necessarily. God's not judging on some scale. Every act of sin, whether it's adultery or murder or thievery or lying, is an act of rebellion against the Almighty God. That's why James says that's true. It doesn't matter the act. It's an act. You rebelled against the sovereign Lord of the universe. You are guilty. Just as guilty as the guy that does a thousand times worse than you do. See, that's, a, that's, that's how the Bible views our sin, as an act of rebellion against the Sovereign Lord of the universe, against a holy God. And we've got to start seeing that. That our little things are just as bad as the big things because they're acts of rebellion. You can go on and look at other scriptures. Romans 14, 23. And we need to meditate on these. I really, That's why I've been thinking about this a whole lot this week. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Hebrews eleven six without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. Who whatever is not from faith is sin. The guy that was I was was listening to this sermon, he said, "Look, you can go build a hospital, and it's sinful." And you say, "Well, how can that be? How could me building a hospital be sinful?" That's what Paul said. If you're not doing it to bring glory to God, if you're not doing it on His behalf, if you're not doing it as an act of service to Him, it it, not only does it not please God, it's sinful. Because you're doing it for your own reasons. You're doing it for a pat on the back. You're doing it to make yourself feel better. You're you're doing it to put your name on a plaque on a wall. doesn't matter. At the end of the day, because you're not doing it for His glory, you're rebelling against the God of the universe, and you're guilty. See, we need to meditate on this. If we want to love God more, then we need to see ourselves as God sees us. We need to see ourselves as more sinful. And you see, it's kind of, it's kind of this odd exercise, right? He who is forgiven little loves little. I've never been a drug addict. I've never done those. I don't have this story of all that stuff. And some of you don't either. But I want to love him more. Don't you? I want to love him like she loves him. What's holding me back? I can't just run out and commit a bunch of sins, but what I can do is see myself as more sinful. I can see myself in the light of the glory of God. And the more I see that and begin to push aside, well, she does this or he does that, forget all that, it's just about me and him. And I see my sin as a rebellion against him and I see myself as more sinful, then the love of God should begin to grow in my heart because now I see the grace that He shared with me in forgiving my sins. So let's strive to see ourselves as that woman saw herself, not as as Simon did, but as people who have been forgiven much because when we do that, we will love God more. All right, next week, I had a couple people ask me, about what I'm doing next week and um, uh, half the time I, I don't really know because I got a list of parables but I'm, I've, I've decided I'm going to start following the list so you'll know next week what we're going to do so next week next week we're going to talk about the rich man's meditation that's in Luke 12 and so if you want to read ahead you can uh, you can do that let's pray Father